From the heart of Vermont, this podcast is brought to you by Capital City Concerts, a concert series which assembles exceptional musicians from across the globe in remarkable live performances in an intimate venue. Learn more at capitalcityconcerts.org. I would learn from Marceau really a philosophy of life, a metaphoric worldview. It wasn't just learning how to do pantomime. And that's why I consider Marceau as a mentor. He taught me about life, not just about technique. My name is Karen Kevra, and you're listening to Muse Mentors, a podcast about artists and their mentors. Some people say it's not what you know, but who you know. I say it's how you know them. If you type out his name, Rob Merman, your annoying and persistent spell check will coax you to turn Merman into Merlin. I think spell check is on to something. Rob Merman was an important protege of the legendary French pantomimist Marcel Marceau. He's also the magical mastermind and founder of Vermont's world-renowned children's circus called Circus Smirkus, a circus which was the embodiment of Rob the touch of wonder, the charm, the storyline, the mime, and the humor. Here in Vermont, Rob deserves to be on the same lofty pedestal as Ben and Jerry and Bernie Sanders, but Rob is neither a politician or a brand of ice cream. Rob Merman is a poem. He is agelessly handsome. His mop of dark brown hair perfectly matches his melty dark eyes. His face lights up when he smiles, and so does the room. He has a way of drawing a person into his world. When I spoke with him recently, I asked him how it all started. I remember when I was younger, maybe eight years old, on a beautiful spring Saturday morning, I packed myself a bag lunch, you know, peanut butter sandwich and some potato chips and a banana, and I walked about half a mile away from my house to this hill and I sat on the hill it was a perfect day I was waiting for the right puffy cumulus cloud to come by over my head so my plan was to follow that cloud wherever it took me until about noon then I would sit and have my lunch wherever I was and then retrace my steps back in time for dinner And that was going to be my adventure when I was eight years old. And I remember very clearly waiting for the right little puffy cloud to come over the horizon and right overhead. And I started following it. Suddenly I had to start running because the cloud was moving faster and faster. And within two minutes, boom, it was way over the horizon. And I was still pretty much where that hill was. And I remember thinking to myself, Boy, the world is bigger than I thought. What I thought of a friendship with that cloud, that cloud had nothing to do with me. You know, so I realized that I had to have my own adventures out in the world and discover how to do that as I grew older. Wow. Rob the Cloud Chaser. (laughs) (laughs) So, what's the difference between a mentor and a teacher? A mentor 
teaches me how to move through the world as a model, someone to to study not only what he has to to teach me, but to study who this person is. How does this person live in the world? And why is it that I'm attracted to that style of living? And so for me, my mentor, who was Marcel Marceau, really taught me how to move through the world. Quite literally. Quite literally, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I first saw Marceau on TV. I was 15 years old, and this was 1965. He was on the Red Skeleton show. Red Skeleton had an, an hour variety show. I think it was on Sunday evenings. Live from Hollywood. The Red Skeleton Show, brought to you by Ed's Evaporated Milk. First... And our family would sit in front of the TV and Suddenly, here comes this man, Marcel Marceau and Red Skelton, that did a full hour without speaking a word. And this was kind of unheard of on TV. And I was just, I was mesmerized by how they could express drama and comedy and tragedy without speaking a word, just through movements and gestures and silent storytelling. And it it just grabbed me. I realized that that's something I want to learn how to do to express myself in the world through silence. So was that the moment? Was that the moment you knew you wanted to be a mime or a clown? Yes, I, I think it was. I was very athletic when I was young. And so, I, you know, I had taught myself how to juggle and how to balance on a on a wire and I didn't have any circus teachers at that point. I was pretty much self-taught. And when I discovered Marceau and the way he could express himself through movement, and I also had a love of circus. And I think the love of circus came through the idea of circus lifestyle. I love the idea of traveling around the world with a community of of artists and taking whatever talents I had and what skills I could learn and sharing them with the world in a lifestyle of renewable adventure. Tell me about your first encounter with Marcel Marceau. I was in college. I was 19 years old, Lake Forest College, which is in Illinois, north of Chicago. And I read in the paper that Marcel Marceau would be performing live up in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. So this was in the middle of the winter. And I said to myself, this, this is my chance. I got to go see this guy. And I borrowed a friend's car. It was in a snowstorm. It was going to be several hours to drive up to Madison, Wisconsin. But I arrive at the theater. The snow is coming down. There's ice everywhere. I run up to the box office. It was about quarter of eight. The show is going to start at eight. And there's a sign on the box office, sold out. Oh, 
well, you know, what are you going to do when you're 19? You just don't, <laughs> you don't give up. <laughs> so right. in the snow, I started walking around the block, wondering how can I get into the theater? And I'm going down this alleyway. And at the end of this alleyway, there's a door that opens. And so I go in the door and I'm in this uh, hallway of, of darkened office. I opened another door and suddenly there's winter coats everywhere and I'm pushing these coats out of my way, like coats hanging uh, on a rack. And suddenly the light goes on and there's a guy standing there looking down at me and he says, are you here to help? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I almost stood up straight, you know, and saluted at this guy, not knowing what was going on. And he said, well, quick, the show's about to start and it's sold out. So we're going to grab all these folding chairs and put them in the back so the staff can see the show. And I said, yes, sir. That's why I'm here, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so I grabbed a stack of folding chairs and I ran back to the theater uh, with this guy and I started setting up the folding chairs and I set up the last chair and sat right down. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, oh. and Marceau came on. For those of you who have never seen Marceau perform live on stage, it is an iconic experience this solo performer in a spotlight for two hours performing comedy and tragedy and drama and the audience is just responding uh and in the i grabbed a program and in the back of the program the playbill there was a sentence that said marcel marceau will be opening his first mime school in paris this coming fall 1969 <laughs> I still have that program. And I underlined that sentence. I wrote a letter saying I, I was interested in the mime school. And I got a form letter that came back. One page form letter said, classes begin October 3rd, 1969 at the, the old Théâtre de la Musique in Paris. I thought, what? You know, there's no audition. So I asked my father and good for him. I said, dad, what, what does this mean? He said, well, You'll never know unless you go and find out. So I packed a bag and went off to Paris, and that was that. So how did he train you? What was it like? The school in 1969 was, it was very informal. It was not very structured. Uh, there were other teachers there. There was Marceau. He had two other mime teachers teaching different aspects of mime. There was a classical dance teacher, a fencing teacher, an acrobatic teacher, six, seven hours a day, seven days a week. Now, I remember very well what I most got from Marceau was observing him. Uh, he was not the best teacher of technique. Marceau was a master at improvisation and metaphor. He spoke in metaphors, and he, he really gave me a sense of a metaphoric worldview of life. Uh, and that's how he taught mime also. Can you give us an example of yeah. a metaphor? Uh, he had us uh, eating various um, pantomime food. You know, I'm reaching for an apple and I pick it up and I feel the weight of the invisible apple, shine it on my chest, go to take a bite of it. 
he stopped me again and he said, look, as you're reaching for that apple, imagine that time slows down. And as your hand is reaching for that apple, you imagine an apple orchard in the fall and you can smell the smells of the apple orchard. You're a farmer climbing on a little ladder to reach for apples and you're picking those apples off the tree and putting them in a basket, taking that basket of apples into the kitchen, chopping up the apples and you you can smell the juice and you're baking a pie and you take the apple pie out of the oven and you're smelling the apple juice and the apple pie and you're taking a, a bite of that apple pie. And at that moment, take a bite of the imaginary apple. talking once about how you got on an airplane when you were 19 years old with $50 in your pocket and decided you were going to go find a circus. <laughs> that was a gutsy thing to do. Well, you know, that was around the same time I, I went off to Paris to find Marceau. I had no idea where a circus was. So, you know, I started hitchhiking around and I had $50 in my pocket and I figured I had about three days before the money ran out. So I needed needed to find a circus within three days, and I did. Bumped into a, a show on uh, on the border of England and Wales. Did they audition you? Well, no. I walked up to uh, one guy who he was helping put up the tent. He turned out to be one of the owners. Uh, and I said, uh, you know, I wanted to learn to be a clown. And all he heard was the word clown, I guess, because he said, Oh, you're a clown? Well, let's see what you can do. The show starts in two hours. Put on your makeup over there. (laughs) Wow. Did you have something ready to go? No, not at all. So what did you do? Well, I followed the two other clowns. One was a a Spanish dwarf who came up to about my my waist, and the other was a a big German fellow. So I was kind of the guy in the middle, and I followed them around. And I, I found out later that circus people test you. When an outsider comes in and says he wants to be in the circus, they put you through the ringer. And what they did to me at that first show, they tested me. They they threw me on top of a camel <laughs> and whacked the camel by the butt there. There's nothing to hold on to except the one hump. So uh-huh. the camel starts running around the ring, and I'm holding on to the hump and sliding down and trying to crawl back up. And... I didn't know what was going on. And And how is the audience reacting? They thought it was all part of the act. And they were laughing. (laughs) They were laughing. And Charlie, the uh, the German clown, saw me and he said, he said, Tex, they called me Tex because I was American. So they figured I was a cowboy, right? (laughs) So they said, Tex, next time you, you go around, grab the trapeze bar. And there I am bouncing on top of the camel. And I look up and there's the trapeze bar. I was that, you know, I was that high. So I grabbed the trapeze bar. The camel goes running out through my legs and out of the ring and I'm swinging from the trapeze bar kicking my legs and I'm thinking this is great I'm in the circus (laughs) so were you exhilarated or were you scared or both well I I wasn't scared until there I was hanging by the trapeze bar and the music changed and I looked down at the at the curtain and the curtain opens and the elephants started to run in and I thought (laughs) oh my god So I just let go, I dropped to the ground, 
I wasn't hurt. I did a little dance and I ran through the audience out through the aisle and out through the tent. <laughs> that was my that was my big uh, entrance to the circus world. <laughs> Marcel Marceau was shaped by world events. And at a, a real low point in human history, his father died in Auschwitz. And so he went on to become part of the resistance. So he saw terrible things, war and death and profound loss. So I wonder, do you see circus arts responding to current world events and politics today. Marceau loved the circus. He he talked about circus arts and famous clowns that he had known in his career. I was inspired to start my own circus here in Vermont called Circus Smirkus because I wanted to provide a place where kids could follow their own dreams right into the circus ring. And I was fortunate to have Marceau come and do a benefit show in the Circus Smirkus Ring here in Vermont in, in 1999, uh, which was quite an experience. And he wrote a letter to me about circus after that. Can I read a little bit of that? Oh, absolutely. What he please. said about circus. He said, circus is loved in the whole world. Like music, it explains nothing. Rather, it touches your heart by the risk circus people take, not only through physical movements, but by the poetry they give with their soul. The children of Circus Smirkus will come to know that learning the mysteries of our being does not come from any specific nationality, religion, or technique, but comes from knowing the essence of what is humanity on this earth, what is love, what is giving to people the best of your life. The circus, and Smirkus in particular, he writes, is the essence of all children from all backgrounds and cultures, united in one circus ring of spirit, struggling peacefully and artistically for a better world, while forever making us laugh and cry with the silent language of the heart. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so so when you ask about his his own experience in the underground in the French resistance during World War II, he often said that uh, maybe that had his experience when he was young. Maybe he said he learned the power of silence because in the resistance, in the underground, they had to work silently. And literally. Literally. Yeah. I understand that that he had a, a mission to evacuate Jewish children who had been hiding uh, in a French orphanage yeah. to try to get them to the Swiss border, and he he and they had to do that silently and gesturally, and because of that, he actually won the trust of these children and saved their lives. Yes. Uh 
Marceau was also a painter. He was a very good artist. And one of his jobs in the underground was forging documents, especially children's documents, to to show that they were perhaps younger than they really were. He led children, as you say, across the borders from France and across the mountains into Switzerland to safety. And yeah, they had to be silent in doing that. And Marceau often talked about the power of silence, not only to communicate, but to express what he liked to call the silent language of the soul. And, you know, we say this in music too. There's a lot of music in the silences. Ah, yeah. Marceau talked a lot about music and how mime was very much like music, you know, using art in terms of gesture and movement. He talked about the breath, the articulation of gesture, the tonality. He used musical terms. And I remember one time he was talking about sculpture, the beautiful sculptures of the world. He said, when you look at a sculpture, it is like music. It's a moment of time, but it's not frozen time. The sculpture projects movement. He said that the sculptor puts the soul of man in stone. You know, I would say that there were two iconic mimes in the 20th century. One was Charlie Chaplin in the first half of the 20th century. His image was known around the world. And in the second half of the 20th century, it was Marceau with his iconic image and whiteface. Huh, whiteface. Why whiteface? There must be some history in there. Well, the whiteface is a tradition that comes from the uh, Commedia dell'arte, you know, this 300-year theater style coming out of Italy and France. Uh, one of the characters was a Pierrot character who was supposedly a baker's son, who was a kind of a bumbling character. And on stage, he would sometimes fall into a, a barrel of flour and, and just be covered with flour, and his face would be all white. And Marceau took on this uh, character of Pierrot, with the white face, and he stylized this white face partly in response to Pierrot and partly because he would be performing on stage sometimes for you know audiences of two or 3,000 people, a solo character on stage, and the white face allowed him to be very expressive at that distance. Huh. It seems to me there is overlap between Chaplin and Marceau, and yet there are distinctions, right? The difference is that Chaplin, who was a great pantomime artist in Marceau, had huge respect for the silent film clowns. Chaplin became known through, through cinema, and Marceau became known worldwide from performing for 60 years nonstop around the world. In live performance. In live performance. He was recognized for his unique artistry, uh, not by just other actors and mimes, but by uh, presidents and kings and, you know, you know, Hollywood movie stars. You know, I would see Marceau 
every year when he was on tour, when he would come to the States and, you know, he would, he would take me out for dinner. But when Marceau performed in Hollywood, a lot of film stars would come to see him. They revered him, you know, stars like Anthony Hopkins and Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep, uh, you name it. They all revered his artistry. And when I would visit Marceau after a performance, one of my uh, spontaneous jobs was when Marceau would come uh, backstage, there'd be a line of people who wanted his autograph. So he would sit at a table uh, with a pen. And my job was when someone in the front of the line would say their name, I would print the name on a piece of paper and give it to Marceau so he could copy the name. One of the stories is that here we are in Hollywood and a lot of the stars come to meet Marceau and Marceau's sitting at the desk and here steps forward Pierce Brosnan, you know, at the time when he was just beginning his James Bond movies. So he, right. you know, handsome fellow, very dignified and good looking. He steps up and he says, Pierce Brosnan. And so I'm starting to write it down. I don't think Marceau knew he who he was because he looks up and he says, yes, peace in Bosnia. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know, I'm not surprised that that the great actors of the day would flock to him because it strikes me that mime is really the absolute essence of theater. Yes, that's that's a good way to put it. Mime gets down to the essence uh, of any art form, which begins in silence. You know, you're a musician. You just imagine the you're in in an orchestra just before you begin to play, and the conductor lifts his baton. So there's that moment of silence, which is a moment of anticipation before the music begins. And Marceau would talk about those moments as departure points for artistry. All right. A moment of silence, also a, a moment of preparation and a moment of honor, I think. Yes. Yes. Uh, and Marceau recognized the artistry in other artists in the same way that they recognized him. Uh, I have another rather unique experience that moved me very much when I was visiting Marceau out in Chicago one year, I think it was, I think it was in 1973, Marceau was performing in a theater in Chicago, and there was another theater adjacent to his theater, connected only by an alleyway in the back of the, the two theaters, and Rudolf Nureyev was performing in the other theater, and Marceau had never met Nureyev. He mentioned to me that Nureyev was there and that they were going to meet in that alleyway during the intermissions of their shows. So would I like to come back? And I said, oh, yes, please, please. So so anyway, here comes the intermission of the shows. And Marceau, you know, in full costume and makeup, goes out into the alleyway. And here comes Rudolf Nureyev in his ballet tights and his beautiful head like a lion, you know, his hair brushed back, this beautiful artist. And they were like two teenagers about to meet their idol. They approached each other very slowly. And then when they got close, 
Simultaneously, they both reached a hand to the other's face and they both caressed each other's cheek. And then they hugged. It was just remarkable. There was a humility. They were both humble, meeting someone that they recognized that were on the same level as they were with their artistry. They had nothing to prove to the world. They were at the top of their field and they recognized this in the other and they, they were both humble with that recognition. It was astounding. And that's either something that you were born with or that was passed on to you from Marcel. I remember going to Circus Smirkus performances over the years, and I was struck by the level at which these kids performed and they would do their tadas and they would take bows and there would be curtain calls but you never had the sense they were showing off mm. there was a a humility there uh, a dignity but also a beautiful innocence and yeah yeah you're right in how you described the uh, the young performers it, it was very important for me to try to pass on what I had learned from Marceau as an artist is that you're not showing off, but that you're sharing what you know. You're sharing the art form and you're sharing your skill and talent uh, in a way that resonates with an audience. Uh, Marceau also called that uh, rapport between a performer and the audience. He called it magnetic resonance. Mm. And I tried to impart that to the to the young circus performers that what they were doing was sharing of themselves with the audience in a way that was happy in a profound way. And I think it came through with the way that they smiled. They were genuine smiles. They weren't show business smiles, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And when they would take their bow, it was in recognition of what they had just shared with the audience and what they received in return from the audience. That's one of the things I am proud of, that the, the young circus performers understand how to be genuine in that way as, as an artist. Dear listeners, I have a favor to ask. Creating this podcast takes time, effort, and resources. I'm truly grateful for all of the enthusiasm and interest, the great reviews and ratings. I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show through our Patreon page. The whole thing takes about two minutes. We're asking for $5 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. MuseMentors.com and support us in any way you can today. Thanks. Circus Smirkus is located in far northern Vermont, close to the Canadian border, in a region magnificently known as the Northeast Kingdom. The circus lot is in a farm field, a seemingly unlikely setting for the colorful big top that stops you in your tracks. After you arrive, you pass through a concession tent fragrant with the nostalgic smells of popcorn, hot dogs, and cotton candy, and then you enter the big top. 
the portal to another world, a world of circus magic. You can't help but feel the energy in the tent and you smile and smile and smile so hard that you feel that your ears might fall off. The bleachers are full of expectant spectators. Wide-eyed kids sit on the ground surrounding the circus ring. Overhead, you see yellow, red, and green stars against the dark blue top of the tent. And then the opening act begins. 30 Smirkus troopers aged 10 to 18 blast through the curtain in a whirlwind of acrobatic pyramids, juggling, tumbling, flying through the air, and you are stunned with delight watching how the young performers in the ring support each other through the act and how the eyes of the kids sitting around the ring sparkle with the ache to join in someday, the classic kids' circus dream. It's no wonder that the Disney Channel produced a 15-part series called Totally Circus in 2000. Where does the name Circus Smirkus come from? <laughs> from my mother. <laughs> I, the story goes that uh, the first time before I ran off to to look for a circus, you know, with fifty dollars in my pocket, uh, I I told my my parents that I wanted to go off and find a circus to learn the art form and see what it was all about and. I was going to run off to Europe to do that because that's where they had the best circuses. And I wanted to be inspired to create laughter in the world. And, you know, I went on and on and on and on. And when I finished, she looked at me and said, circus schmirkus, go get a real job in a bank. <laughs> When I was a kid, growing up in suburban New Jersey, I was taken to Madison Square Garden to Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. And it was a big deal and we were very excited. And I went and I was bored out of my gourd. We were miles away. I remember the three rings, but they were quite far from me. I don't recall that there were any children performing. It kind of didn't work for me. What strikes me about Circus Smirkus is that it's small, quite small and intimate, one ring, and that it's a children's circus. So why kids and why small? My background in, in circus was with the European a traveling tent circus. They were one ring under a big top tent. The circuses were generally owned by families who had been in the circus business for five, six, seven generations. So they were passing on their traditions to their children and their children's children and on and on and on. Not only was it a community kind of on the fringe of society, but it, they were families where you know, a 10-year-old kid would be working with their brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents in the ring together. 
and you know, a 10-year-old kid might already speak three or four languages and know geography because they'd be traveling so much. So they, they had a certain maturity in the world. And when I came back to the States, I wanted to give that same sense of circus tradition and family to kids here in America because there wasn't anything like that here in the States. So I insisted that we had a one ring show under a big top and that the traveling from a small town to small town would be an adventure. An adventure in life, you know, not just as a performer, as a juggler or clown or tightrope walker, but that you would be having an experience of life. Tell us about Rufus. <laughs> Rufus, the the pantomime pup. <laughs> in fact, I, I performed with him in, in Denmark, and, and they called him the pantomima hund. <laughs> <laughs> There's, I went down this wonderful vortex of YouTube videos, acts with you and Rufus that were incredibly charming. What an important relationship that was for you. Rufus was a mutt. I found him in a dog pound and he actually did pantomime. I, I never taught Rufus to do any tricks, but Rufus had a way, he had an intelligence. Uh, you know, some animals look at you intently and you could tell that the way their eyes look at you, that they're trying to understand you. And I think with with me and Rufus, I would send an image from my head towards him, you know, like a, a mime image. You project it outwards. And I think he would look at me and see that image so that when I would take a piece of pantomime food, give it to him, he would actually mime eating that food. You could see him chewing and even swallowing this pantomime food. <laughs> that's an expression of mime communication of imagery and that he picks up the imagery that I was projecting and that's and that's what mime is all about I did have experience when I was traveling in the European circuses of studying the best animal trainers that there were out there and there was some incredible rapport I never saw a circus animal trainer being abusive the communication between these animal trainers and the animals was on a level to what it was with me and Rufus, is that there was a communication of respect and trying to find out from each other what you wanted to do and how you wanted to do it, and then uh, do it together as a team. So for me, it wasn't training. It was a matter of communication. Huh. Have you had a dog since then? No, I have not. <laughs> I imagine Rufus would have been a tough act to follow. When did he die? Uh, he lived for uh, 16 years. Wow. You know, he, he died in the mid-90s. Uh, but we traveled around the world performing, and uh, I've never quite had another partner like him. I just couldn't bring myself to 
to get another dog. You have been a mentor to countless smirkos, as I know you call them, over the years, young protégés, performers in Circus Smirkus. I wonder, did Marcel Marceau's influence on you shape you as a mentor? Uh, yes, and that's a good question. Uh, when Marceau came to perform his benefit show with us in Circus Smirkus, at the end of the performance, he called all the Smirkos into the ring called me into the ring with him and the other coaches. And he did something that in his 60 year career performing, he never did before is that in full costume and makeup, he spoke to the audience. There was a standing ovation, but he got everybody to sit down, called all of us into the ring and spoke for 15 minutes. And I was getting teary eyed and people in the ring were getting teary eyed because they saw three generations of mentors in the ring. Mm. I was standing next to Marceau, who was my mentor, and next to me were two of the coaches, Molly Sodek and Jade Kinder Martin from Vermont, who were now professional circus performers. I was mentor to them, and they were mentoring the younger Smirkus kids. It was just a sublime moment. And there's that circle again, there, by the There's way. that circle. <laughs> and to circle back how we started this interview, when you asked me, you know, really what did I learn from Marceau? And I said, it wasn't so much technique of the art of mime, but it was how to move through the world and how to be an artist in the world. That's something that I did try to impart to the younger uh, circus kids. And if I was successful as a mentor with that, then I would be very happy. Rob Merman, like his mentor, Marcel Marceau, has had profound loss in his life. But like Marceau, Rob has found ways to channel misfortune into fortuity. Rob's Parkinson's pantomime project is his latest and perhaps most poignant gift to the world. It was uh, in 2014 that I was noticing some a little bit of tremor in one hand and one arm and uh, my, my, my balance was not as great as it used to be. So I got it checked out and I was diagnosed uh, with Parkinson's disease, or as I like to call it, Parkinson's disorder. Disease is a little bit too harsh. I started to work with other people who had Parkinson's many of them older than me, uh, with a lot worse symptoms, a lot of tremors and difficulty walking and balance symptoms. And I started to teach a pantomime and circus class because I wanted to explore what it was that I knew from the art of mime that could help people with Parkinson's. Because uh, it's been six years now since my diagnosis, but 
my symptoms are very manageable. Most people who meet me have no idea that I have Parkinson's. So in the weekly classes that I taught, I found out that the principles of the art of mime have really helped me out. And it was starting to help others who had Parkinson's. And every time I go to visit my neurologist, he says, you're doing fine. Come back in six months. We'll see how you're doing. You know, he says it's probably the effect of my training, you know, the training in mime and circus. And I think that there's truth to that. Some of the principles of mime that I teach in the exercises with uh, in my class, you know, first is the awareness of how you might be moving wrong. You know, then observe how you're moving wrong. Maybe your one arm is not swinging as much as it used to. Then analyze that movement. Visualize how you want to move correctly. Then do it in pantomime so you get the correct movement that you visualize. And then do the movement for real. So basically it's intentional movement. And those are all principles of mime that seem to have a beneficial effect. There's a kind of cruel irony, I think, in this that you're a <laughs> you're a movement guy. You've you've made an art form out of movement, and here you are faced with this challenge. I recognize the the irony in that. <laughs> a movement guy who has a so-called movement disorder. But it's been fascinating to try to figure out ways to overcome the, the movement disorder. And it's really uh, an educational experience for me because all of these decades that I'm performing in the circus, now I've come full circle to my first love, which is the art of mime. So now I'm focusing on teaching mime and writing about it and seeing how the principles of mime that I learned from my mentor can now help others who have any form of movement disorder. So it's been a fascinating uh, full circle for me. Marceau once defined the art of mime for me. He said, mime is the identification with the essence of all things that surround us and the portrayal of thoughts and emotions and comedies and tragedies of humanity portrayed through the silent language of the soul. If you've enjoyed the Muse Mentors podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. A big thanks to the poetic accordionist Rachel Bell for generously helping to assemble much of the music for this episode. You can learn more about Rachel and her many talented bandmates at musementors.com. While you're there, you can find archival photos of Rob Merman and Marcel Marceau and listen to previous episodes. Until next time, take a moment to close your eyes and remember a time in childhood when a trip to the circus made you believe that anything was possible and share that memory of wonder with someone you love.